my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode is full of masked murderers, deadly outdoors, and zany zealots. Grab your backpack full of anti-bear weapons as we traverse these movie-filled woods together. Number one, Blood in Black Lace, 1964, directed by Mario Bava. A fashion model named Isabella is killed by a masked man. She was employed at a fashion house by Christiana, whose husband died in a car crash. Christiana manages the fashion house with Massimo. More models die, including one that found and burned Isabella's diary. Massimo and other suspects are taken in. Another murder happens while they are all in custody. It's revealed that Christiana killed a girl while Massimo, the killer of the others, was in custody to throw off the police. The two are in love. They work together to kill Christiana's husband, Isabella found out, and blackmailed them. Massimo says Christiana needs to kill one more girl, make it look like a suicide, and leave the mask by the body to frame the girl. Christiana does this, but Massimo loosens a drain pipe, which causes Christiana to fall while she flees the scene after someone, Massimo, starts knocking on the victim's door. Massimo now has Christiana's expensive jewelry. Christiana, having survived the fall, shows up, shoots Massimo, and then succumbs to her wounds on top of his body. Massimo and Christiana are the killers. Blood and Black Lace is considered to be one of the most influential Giallo films. It paved the way for the slasher body count. What's a Giallo film? Giallo is an Italian genre that's themes include thriller horror elements, featuring murder, detectives, seduction, and mostly lacking supernatural elements. Just looking at all the material there is on Giallo gives me anxiety, so I'm going to leave you with that very basic explanation of what Giallo is for now. I talked about Mario Bava way back when I covered Black Sunday on this podcast, so I'm going to focus mainly on Blood and Black Lace instead of the well-known director. This movie is beautiful. The color is striking and prevalent throughout. The costumes and makeup are gorgeous. The sets are extravagant. I really enjoyed the opening credits that show shots of the actors hanging out with vibrant mannequins. There's a really cool establishing shot of the fashion house. The film starts with a static shot of a hanging sign with the name of the estate. One of the two chains holding it up falls off to reveal the estate behind it. Zooms are used for dramatic effect throughout the entire movie. The zooms might be a little overdone, but I really enjoyed them. I'm a sucker for zooms. I think they're funny. I watched the Italian dubbed version. It appears it was originally filmed in English, and there is an English dub, but I actually liked hearing the Italian. 
For a movie released in 1964, how big could the body count really be? The count is pretty impressive actually, and every kill is done in a unique manner. I'd say you can definitely call Blood and Black Lace a slasher. It's kind of like Scream. You have a masked character running around killing people, and then it's revealed that the killer was two different people working together. Well, what I mean to say is Scream is exactly like Blood and Black Lace. How were the kills? I'm getting there, hold your horses. There are seven deaths in total. The items used for murder are a razor, weird claw gauntlet, furnace, pillow, bathtub, and gun. There is some fun burnt face makeup used for the furnace kill. The victim's face was pushed onto the red hot furnace. The makeup took forever to apply and remove, so the actor decided to keep it on one night after shooting, which gave her mother a bit of a shock when she went home. For the framed victim kill, the victim is drowned in a tub, then her wrists were slit post-mortem to make it look like a suicide. I'm pretty sure an autopsy would have been done on the body given the circumstances. You know, all the weird surrounding death. It would have been obvious that it was foul play. Blood and Black Lace is an aesthetically pleasing whodunit with loads of death for the time. If you have any interest in checking out Giallo Film, it's a great place to start. Number 2, Backcountry 2014, directed by Adam McDonald. A couple, Alex and Jen, go into the wilderness. Alex really wants to show Jen a place he used to go to when he was younger. In the woods, they meet Brad. Brad's weird and kind of threatening. Brad leaves. The couple keeps adventuring deeper into the woods. Alex thinks he found the spot he wanted to show Jen, but he's wrong. They are completely lost. Jen is upset with Alex. Alex says he was going to propose. Alex gets mauled to death by a bear. Jen was scratched by the bear, but was able to get away alive. Jen wanders around in the woods, breaks her ankle, and luckily comes across the canoe the couple used to enter the woods. Jen gets in the canoe, gets to land, and is found by Brad and the group he's about to take into the woods. Alex's incompetence and a bear are the killers. I don't even want to put the bear on the list. The bear was just being a bear. Everything that happens in backcountry is Alex's fault. He's the worst. Throughout the movie, Alex guilts Jen into doing things she doesn't want to do. Jen is willing to do things because she loves Alex. Jen wants Alex to go to an art show with her, but Alex isn't willing to do one simple thing that Jen would actually enjoy. Alex uses the I was going to propose option select after Jen goes in on him when it's revealed they are completely lost and Alex didn't do any proper planning for the trip. Jen rightfully tells Alex that he's a loser and that she continuously told him she didn't even want to go to the woods. Hey, people that have a significant other, I want to give you some obvious advice. If you're planning on proposing to your better half, maybe don't be a selfish garbage person who makes the person you're going to propose to do something they really don't want to do just so you can propose. It's revealed that this is Jen's first time camping. Alex is terrible, so of course he decides to take Jen deep into the woods without a map after taking her phone out of her bag and leaving it in the car without telling her instead of doing a nice on-trail camping trip for her first camping experience. I'm personally scared of heights like any rational person. If I was dating Alex, he'd probably take me to a swimming pool with crazy high diving boards 
and tell me I have to climb up and jump from the highest diving board, avoiding any of the easier, less elevated boards if I want him to put a ring on it. Alex is a sadistic monster. I knew a bear mauling was on the horizon, and all I could do was count the minutes while I waited for the hero of the film, the bear, to brutally murder the villain, Alex. This is a low-budget film, so how did the bear attack look? Is it even possible to have a bear attack on camera for a low-budget film? Nope, not really. If you are doing a low-budget comedy that includes a bear attack, it might work, but if you are trying to sell a bear attack in a serious manner, it's not going to happen. The bear attack in Backcountry is basically shots of a super sweet, huge black bear yelling and eating a steak with blood applied on its nose mixed with shots of Alex and Jen acting terrified. The bear attack is unintentionally hilarious. Alex also acts like a bear is eating him, which is fantastic. Here is what Alex sounds like during the bites. Ah, run, Jen, run. No joke. That is how Jeff Roop, who plays Alex, sounds when he's being mauled by the bear. Besides Roop's acting as he's being eaten and mauled by the bear, the acting in Backcountry is fine. The bear attack and the other action sequence where Jen falls while climbing down a waterfall are terribly shot and don't sell the attack or fall in any way. The editing is choppy and way too many shots are used, especially for the waterfall fall. When it comes to the gore, Backcountry does an amazing job. The gore is by far the biggest selling point of the movie. Alex's bear-inflicted wounds look amazing. You have his leg torn open, which shows bone and everything. The bear eats half of Alex's face, making it fall off his skull. Alex dropped a canoe on his foot, so we end up seeing his gross toe, which looks disgusting. There's a deer carcass that's the bear's leftovers that looks authentic. Definite kudos to the practical effects team that made the gore happen. Everything else in the movie is pretty underwhelming. I didn't mention that at one point Jen outruns the bear. She must be crazy fast. Oh, and Brad is a creepy racist douche. Not surprising given his name. I like the fact that the movie makes you think Brad is going to come back and kill the couple. That's how you do a red herring. Brad was played by Eric Balfour, who you might recognize from his roles as Jesse from Buffy and Eddie in The O.C., Missy Peregrine played Jen and is credited as a voice in Piwacket, McDonald's other, better film that I covered last episode. Skip Backcountry and check out Piwacket instead. I would have liked Backcountry more if it focused more on the one-sided relationship between Alex and Jen, removed the bear attack, and just had the couple spiral further and further into madness until one killed the other while they were lost in the woods. Number 3, Happy Death Day to You, 2019, directed by Christopher Landon. Ryan, Carter's roommate from the first movie, and his nerdy friends created a device that caused the time loops. Future Ryan kills past Ryan to stop him from using the machine. A loop is started, Future Ryan is stopped, and the machine is turned on, which sends Tree back to Monday the 18th. This time, Tree is in a different universe where her mom is still alive, Carter is dating Danielle, Lori doesn't want to murder Tree, and Tree never had an affair with her teacher, Mr. Butler. Tree works with Ryan and the nerds to help them get the machine up and running in order to get her back to her original universe and stop the looping. 
Tree works as a living memory bank of all the algorithms used on the machine until it works. Before the machine is used, Tree saves Lori and others that the killers, Toombs, Mr. Butler, and his wife were killing in the new universe. The machine then sends Tree back to her universe, and DARPA picks up Tree, Carter, Ryan, and the other nerds to work with them. Technically, no one ends up being the killer, since Tree saves the other universe victims before going back to her universe, and future Ryan was stopped. The attempted killers are future Ryan, Toombs, and the Butlers. Toombs is the serial killer that killed Tree's mom in the original universe, but didn't kill the mom in the new universe. Happy Death Day to You is a sci-fi romantic thriller. The horror elements are almost completely gone. There's a bit of horror when Ryan is killed by future Ryan and when Tree's at the hospital, but this isn't a horror franchise at this point. That's fine though. Maybe Happy Death Day Tree will lean back more heavily into horror if it's ever made. The sequel is not doing great at the box office, but looks like it's going to make a profit. The Alamo Draft House isn't even playing the movie at any of the locations near me, even though they're advertising the movie. There was no possible way I was going to drive 40 minutes for the Alamo Draft House experience. Say what you will about Blumhouse Productions, but you can't deny they're great at making money. Since Happy Death Day 2U isn't really a horror movie and isn't doing all that great at the box office, how is it? It's fun, plain and simple. Is it a good movie? Nah. Is it a cohesive movie? Nope. Is Jessica Ross still amazing? Yes. The Happy Death Day franchise would not work without her charisma. I want to see her in more things. Let's get a Scream Queens Season 3 where the universities collide and Tree's sent to the Kappa House to face off against Emma Roberts' Chanel. If you watch the trailer for Happy Death Day 2U, a lot of the best stuff is spoiled. You see most of Tree's suicides in the trailer. I'm not sure which trailer, but I'm pretty sure you see the skydiving without a parachute, hair dryer in a bathtub, and Drano chug in one of the trailers. Why does Tree kill herself? To reset the day without being painfully murdered. Why does she drink Drano then? That sounds like an awful way to go. It is definitely the funniest suicide of the bunch, but probably the one that would be the most horrible death. I'd probably just down a bunch of pills with a bottle of liquor, like a rational person stuck in a deadly time loop would. Downing a bunch of pills isn't very cinematic though. Like the first movie, the idea that Tree sustains some level of injury from each death is still in this movie. I didn't like this idea in the first movie, and I don't like it in this one. I know it's lazy writing to create higher stakes, but I think being stuck in the time loop is stakes enough. When they casted Ryan in the first movie, I don't think they thought about him having a bigger role. Ryan's actor is not a very good actor, which luckily didn't matter in the original. An annoying Dean character was added to be a source of conflict. I think terrible authority figure who won't listen to reason and is a jerk is my least favorite archetype. They're almost always groan inducing and forced. I absolutely hated the Dean character. Not in the you're supposed to hate them way, in the why are we wasting time interacting with this awful character way. His acting was also bad. Come to think of it, pretty much everyone but Jessica Roth is either barely passable or terrible. That's what you get when you roll the cheaper, unknown actor's dice. Sometimes you win big with the Jessica Roth, and most of the time you lose. 
Speaking of losing with an unknown, I saw Alita Battle Angel. Short review because it's not technically horror. The visuals, world building, character designs, and action are amazing. As a horror guy, I normally badmouth CGI, but that's normally because the horror movies I watch that have CGI have bad CGI. The CGI in Alita is impressive. I would not be surprised to see a visual effects win for Alita at the 2020 Oscars. I had way more fun with Alita than I did watching any Marvel movie ever. It's hammy and corny in parts. The love interest character Hugo is played by Kean Johnson. Why did I inform you of his name? He's terrible. He's by far the worst part of the movie. He's going to be in some weird horror movie with Johnny Knoxville, which I'll probably see because I'm a glutton for punishment. I hope Johnson is better in that. Alita Battle Angel is now the gold standard for live action anime adaptations. Oh, and don't be fooled by the PG-13 rating. It has some R-rated level gore and body horror. The MPAA was probably like, Mr. Rodriguez, you're getting an R rating, you goober. People are getting sliced up, faces are bashed in, and cut off. There's blood. Then Robert Rodriguez probably said, First of all, cyborgs. Second, look, I changed the color of the blood. It's blue now. And the MPAA said, Blue blood, you say? PG-13 it is. Oops, the Alita tangent kind of took over. Anyway, back to Happy Death Day to you. Uh, it's fun. If you like the first Happy Death Day, you'll be entertained by the sequel. It's amusing and all over the place. It's more of the same with some new spice. It's like three movies in one. If you could only see one movie though, I say check out Alita Battle Angel. Alita is like a full, brand new Barrel of Monkeys level of fun. Happy Death Day to you is fun, but it's more like you found a couple mangy straggler monkeys in an old Happy Death Day barrel kind of fun. I saw both movies in theater this past week, and Alita completely eclipsed Happy Death Day to you. Number 4, Black Death, 2010, directed by Christopher Smith. A monk named Osmond accompanies a group of religious zealots, led by Ulrich, to a village that hasn't been affected by pestilence and is also allegedly run by a necromancer. Along their journey, Ulrich kills a woman accused of being a witch and calls it a mercy killing. Osmond realizes Avril, the girl he left the monastery to see, is dead. The zealots are attacked by thieves, but defeat the attackers with only one casualty on their side. Once the posse arrives at the village, they realize the necromancer is a woman named Langiva who's in charge. Langiva befriends Osmond, shows him Avril's body, resurrects Avril, drugs the zealots, locks them up, and starts killing them one by one even if they renounce God. Langiva lets Osmond live and see Avril. Avril is acting strange. Osmond kills her to send her back to God. Ulrich, who's being pulled apart by horses, reveals he brought the plague to the village before he's torn apart. Osmond attacks Langiva but fails to kill her. She tells him she found Avril alive and drugged her to make it look like she could perform miracles to gain power. Osmond and one of the zealots make it out alive. Osmond then becomes a cold-hearted zealot who murders women that remind him of Langiva. Ulrich, his gang of zealots, Osmond, thieves, and the plague are the killers. I wanted to make sure I covered everything that happens in that summary, 
so you don't have to waste your time watching any of this garbage. A group of knights go to a town to find a necromancer. That should make for an awesome movie, right? Wrong. There isn't even really a necromancer. The real monsters of the movie are the religious zealots. They go to a peaceful village with the intention of murdering people and bringing the plague just because the village doesn't worship God. The weird thing is, Black Death frames the zealots as the heroes of the film. They basically win? Josh, you said the village captured and killed the zealots. Why aren't they on your killer list? I consider killing people that come to where you live with the intention of killing you to be self-defense. I wanted Langaiva to actually be a necromancer. I wanted her to destroy the zealots with magic. It's interesting to see Osman lose his faith and become a monster and all, but it's not enough to make me enjoy the ending. You could still have Langaiva decimate the zealots and only have Osmond escape. Black Death is an R-rated movie that shies away from showing gore throughout. I felt like I was watching an edited version of the film. The costume design and locations look pretty great, but everything else is filmed in such a boring or poor manner. Action sequences are choppily cut together shaky cam shots. Terrible slow motion is used generously throughout the entire movie. The acting is fine, but no one besides Eddie Redmayne, who played Osmond, stands out. Carice Von Houten plays Langaiva. She also plays Melisandre, the Red Woman in Game of Thrones. She's good at playing mysterious witch-type characters. Speaking of Game of Thrones, Sean Bean is also in this and fulfills the Sean Bean dies trope. He was Ulrich and his pulled apart by horse's death was fun, but like the other scenes throughout the movie, it's not as good as it could have been since we barely see Bean ripped apart. If I remember correctly, there's only a quick close-up shot of one of his arms being ripped off. The rest is implied. Most of the gore is implied. The problem is that so much of the gore is implied. Black Death doesn't really have any satisfying gore because of this. Gore does not a movie make, so this would have been fine if the ending made me feel anything besides frustration. Normally, I like endings where villains win, but the zealots have no redeeming qualities. The last time an unlikable garbage villain won on this podcast was that damn brat in Better Watch Out. No one wants an unlikable villain to win. I didn't really talk about the gore that's actually shown. It's fine. The plague symptoms and bodies of those that succumb to the plague look good. The bits of weapon and torture-induced gore that's actually on screen is decent. I thought it was crazy stupid when Osman killed Avril. Of course she's going to need some time to get her bearings after being dead. It's revealed that she was never really dead, but she still would have needed some help after being attacked by thieves. Osman's just like, Avril's broken, I'll send her to God with this dagger. He'll know how to fix her. Black Death has an amazing premise, but instead of delivering a great viewing experience, the movie dropped its shorts, squatted over my punch bowl, and pinched one off. Don't bother with Black Death. Christopher Smith, the director, also directed Triangle and Severance, which I enjoyed, the latter more than the former, so Black Death was extra disappointing. Number 5, Tetsuo the Iron Man. 1989, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. A metal fetishist runs into the street and is hit by a car. The driver of the car, a salary man, and the passenger, his girlfriend, dump the body in a ravine and have sex. 
The metal fetishist vows revenge and somehow makes the salary man start to turn into metal. The salary man is attacked by a woman who the metal fetishist possesses. The woman is killed in self-defense and the salary man gets away. He then has a dream about his girlfriend probing him with a giant metal groin tentacle. He wakes up and they have sex again. They then eat, but whenever his girlfriend eats, the salary man hears metal sounds. The salary man then ends up with a giant metal drill member, which scares the girlfriend. She ends up impaled on it and dies. The metal fetishist and salary man then fight. They both fully become machines, combine, then work together to turn the entire world into a metal world. The metal fetishist and salary man are the killers. First of all, what? What is correct? Tetsuo the Iron Man is a surreal body horror art film. Most of what happens is completely nonsensical, and the hair-thin plot that is there is hard to follow. The runtime is about an hour. Let me be completely honest with you listeners. I fell asleep multiple times during this hour-long movie. It was that boring to me. After I nodded off the first time, I thought about rewinding the movie and giving it my full attention, but then I decided, what's the point? Tetsuo appears to be a vessel for Shinya Sakamoto to showcase a bunch of weird cybernetic ideas. The movie was filmed over 18 months, and it sounds like almost everyone involved ended up quitting at some point, which eventually led to the actors finishing everything. Sukamoto played the metal fetishist. The acting is over the top and unbelievable, but given the structure and plot of the film, the performances make sense. The practical effects work is interesting. Some of the effects are done well enough. There's a part where the metal fetishist slices open his leg and inserts a threaded steel rod which looked painfully real. On the other hand, a lot of the other effects look cheap. None of the human turning to metal parts look all that great. I could never look past some metal being glued on top of the skin of actors. There's a lot of love for this movie, which I think I understand, even though I didn't really enjoy it at all. Cinephiles love a weird genre film. Tetsuo provides an idea of humans being infected by machines. I think I would have preferred the film to be shot in color instead of black and white since the contrast between flesh and blood and metal would be much more interesting in color. Due to Tetsuo being shot in black and white, everything melds together. This isn't true of all black and white films, obviously, but there's not enough contrast in Tetsuo. I like the shots of the metal fetishist being shot like a cannonball, and even though I found the score to be a bit grating, the industrial score perfectly fits with the aesthetic. I randomly decided to watch Tetsuo the Iron Man after seeing it pop up in a discussion thread about Alita Battle Angel, so I definitely went into this movie with the wrong expectations. If I had known beforehand that Tetsuo is at its core a surreal art film covered in metal scraps, I probably would have had a cup of coffee or two before watching it seeing as I went in a bit tired and thought the movie's riveting plot would keep me awake. Maybe when it was released, this film was something special, but it doesn't really do anything for me at this time. If you're a fan of weird genre film, and would like to see some body horror that involves humans becoming machines, 
think about giving Tetsuo the Iron Man a watch. For everyone else, I'd say skip out on Tetsuo entirely. Possible pet warning, which I doubt anyone who's interested in seeing this movie will care about. I believe some cats are turned into metal abominations. I must have slept through that part, so I don't know how disturbing it is. Number 6. Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954, directed by Jack Arnold. Two scientists, David and Kay, and a doctor who has money named Mark, go on an expedition with a captain named Lucas and some others after a fossil is found. A creature that's living in a place called the Black Lagoon has killed part of the party that found the fossil that the new crew was supposed to meet up with. The crew discovers the creature. David wants to study it alive, and Mark wants to kill it. Mark injures the creature with a harpoon gun, but the creature gets away. The creature gets on the boat and kills more people. The crew drugs the creature. The creature is captured, but gets loose and continues attacking. The crew tries to leave, but the creature blocks the exit. David and Mark dive into the water. The creature kills Mark, and David is able to clear the blockage. The creature jumps on board, grabs Kay, dives into the water, and swims to its cave. David dives after it, tries to fight it, starts losing, but is saved after Lucas and another man shoot the creature multiple times. David tells them to let the creature go. It goes into the water where it appears to die. The creature from the Black Lagoon is the killer. Sure, it looks like it was trying to protect itself for at least one of its kills, but it kills a bunch of other people when it's not in danger. As a kid, I thought the creature from the Black Lagoon was the coolest universal monster. Funnily enough, I hadn't actually seen the movie until now. Out of all the monsters, the creature looked the neatest to young me. Millicent Patrick designed the Gilman, but a huge jerk named Bud Westmore downplayed her role in the creature's creation for years. As a boy, I remember going to SeaWorld, it might have been Fiesta, Texas, and walking around in the lagoon area thinking I'd possibly see the creature. I never did, obviously. In Tony Hawk's Underground, you could unlock a character named Thud that had a striking resemblance to the creature. I like to skate around as the fishman doing his cinematic special moves. It turns out the name Thud, which stands for Tony Hawk's Underground Dweller, is a reference to Chud, cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. I haven't seen Chud yet, but I'll probably get to it next episode. Creature from the Black Lagoon came out 20 years after most of the other well-known Universal Monster movies. That explains why the cinematography is better. A lot of the shots are your expected flat shots of actors talking, but there are oodles of amazing, for the time at the very least, underwater shots of the men diving, Kay swimming, and the creature. Some of the underwater sequences in the film look like they must have been risky to shoot, especially the part where Mark wrestles underwater with the creature. Rico Browning donned the creature costume for the underwater scenes. He was a professional diver and swimmer amongst a bunch of other job titles. The creature suit didn't have an air tank, so Browning had to hold his breath for up to four minutes at a time to make the fish man believable. The creature is based on a South American myth that there are half-human creatures in the Amazon River. Another similar movie, Anaconda, is based on another myth about giant snakes that inhabit the Amazon River. What I am trying to get across is, be on the lookout for practically anything if you find yourself floating down the Amazon River. 
and Creature from the Black Lagoon, I thought it was out of character for Kay to throw a cigarette in the water. I wouldn't pin her the littering type. Turns out that scene was Browning's idea. The shot of the creature looking at the cigarette butt is neat. The fish paralyzer used in the movie, Rotenone, is in fact real and is used to kill fish. One of the last notable administrations was in 2014. It was used to clear the San Francisco's mountain lake of an invasive species. They could have definitely used some Rotenone in the Piranha series. Creature from the Black Lagoon has some awesome scenes. At one point, Kay throws a lamp at the creature to stop it from attacking one of the crew, which sets the creature ablaze. During another part, Captain Lucas pulls a knife on Mark to let him know he's not the boss of the boat. Money can't buy everything, Mark. Look at me. I'm still the captain. There are also some silly scenes. The creature's face when it's captured and chilling in the cage is probably the funniest thing in the movie. I can't explain why I thought it was hilarious, but if you watch the movie, you'll know the face when you see it. It's also rather funny when the creature jumps on board, scoops up Kay, and dives into the water. It happens in the blink of an eye, and the absurdity of the swift kidnapping is hilarious. I was surprised by the articulation the creature had. There was a device built in to allow for its gills to move, and the actor in the suit on land, Ben Chapman, was able to make the gillman look like it was gasping for air by moving his chin up and down. I enjoy watching these old Universal movies. I recommend giving A Creature from the Black Lagoon a watch. It's a lot of fun. Number 7. The Bloody Reuben 2. Craig Rushes Kappa. If you're a long-time listener of this podcast, I'm assuming you've heard me bring up the short film I wrote and directed called The Bloody Reuben at least once. If you have somehow dodged all my plugs for the movie, it can be easily watched on YouTube. After completing the script years ago, I was already brainstorming ideas for a sequel. Honestly, a sequel will never be made. If I come into a large sum of money, I'd probably remake The Bloody Reuben and add my sequel ideas to the film to make it a feature-length movie. I think it would be fun to make a horror movie that is basically three movies in one. Think about it. You start the first third with what would be your original movie, the next third would be the over-the-top sequel, and the last third could either be a flashback prequel detailing the origins of the monster or slasher character, or a dive into absolute absurdity a la Goes to Space or Hell. Three movies packed into one ridiculous, over-the-top feature. That's my current dream for the Bloody Reuben. Maybe even have a different person direct each third. Hypothetical three-in-one movie aside, I did have a plan for a direct sequel to the original Bloody Reuben. In the script of the Bloody Reuben, the movie starts off with human Craig getting a ride to his first day on the job from his overly Christian mother in a minivan. Both characters were going to be belting out Christian rock at the top of their lungs before getting to the deli where the music would suddenly stop a brief, comedic, incestuous encounter would be had. Craig would exit the van, and the mom would then zoom off with the Christian music blaring. After this, Craig would still die in the alley, and the rest of the movie would continue pretty much exactly the same. The movie was then supposed to end with the monster Craig being picked up by the Christian mom, who wouldn't realize it's not Craig, 
Christian mom would then put her hand on Monster Craig's thigh, start driving, and the movie would end with a close-up of Monster Craig's angry face that's eyes scream, I'm going to kill this woman. I wrote the script for The Bloody Reuben while working at a deli after graduating from the University of Texas in a college apartment in what's called West Campus. In West Campus, there are a bunch of frat houses. The sequel to The Bloody Reuben would open with a crashed van. Craig would stumble out of the van, still covered in blood that wasn't theirs. They'd then shamble up to a frat house during rush week and end up becoming a pledge. Think of all the wacky situations Craig could end up in at the frat house. Pledging, getting hazed, getting drunk. Craig could pour Drano into a beer bong or force the beer bong through another pledge's entire body. Beer pong with torn out eyeballs, a frat douche paddled to death. Everyone loves to see frat boys die. So if I could correctly capture some unique deaths, that sequel would be a hit. Come to think of it, now I really want to write the three-in-one movie. Delhi to frat house to space hell. Wait, space hell? Now that's a movie. Don't forget to pledge at least a dollar on Kickstarter to help me get my new movie, Space Hell, made. Just kidding. I'll never beg you listeners for money. At least not currently. Things change. Anyway, check out my Patreon. Also kidding. I don't think you should have a Patreon unless you get to at least 50 episodes or something. Oh, and I didn't forget about Killer Tongue. I'm still working on getting a decent copy together. That'll do it for Blank is the Killer 39. I want to promise that I'll never fall asleep during another movie, but who knows? Maybe I'll make another poor decision regarding what to watch. You all know me. I'll definitely make another poor decision when picking what to watch in the future. If you like this episode of Blank is the Killer, I'd sure appreciate if you left a review on iTunes. Allegedly, that's the best way to get eyes on your podcast. Shout out and thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. There are a ton of great podcasts on the network. Check them out. I'll be back in your ears on March 10th with episode 40. Until then, stay away from the Amazon River unless you are heavily armed and adorned in full plate armor. It's better to drown because you can't swim in plate armor than be brutally murdered by some mythological reptile thing.